in Zechariah chapter number 7, we've just experienced a brief break. In fact, a period of about two years has passed since the first visions that Zechariah was given. The temple is about halfway built at this point. And uh, we're going to chapters 9 through 14 come at many, many, many years later. In fact, most folks believe they came when Zechariah was an old man. He's still a young man at this point in his life, uh, probably in his early 20s, maybe even younger than that, as he's giving these uh, visions in chapters 7 and 8. In fact, all from chapter 1 to chapter 8 is at young periods in his life. But two years has passed since the first six chapters were given to him. And in chapter number 7, we see some revelations concerning Israel's fast. Now, He's been dealing with Israel's future, but he immediately draws the, or God does, sometimes you'll still hear me say he, I don't mean Zechariah, I mean the Lord. Uh, he, he draws the focus back to the immediate, and there are some, there is sort of a, a, a group of emissaries, some ambassadors, uh, that come from Bethel, and they have a question about some of the things that Israel has been doing. And so let's begin, let's read the first three verses of chapter 7. The Bible says, And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Kislev, when they had sent unto the house of God Sherezer and, uh, let me get this right, Regimelech and their men to pray before the Lord, and to speak unto the priests which were in the house of the Lord of hosts, and to the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month? separating myself as I have done these so many years. Now we have to understand a little context about what's been asked there. There were four feasts, or four fasts, excuse me, that the, the Jews observed during their time of exile. One was to commemorate the taking of the city of Jerusalem. One was to commemorate the siege of the city of Jerusalem. One was to commemorate the burning of the temple. And one was to commemorate the murder of Gedaliah, the governor. And so the temple is nearing its its completion, and these Jews come to Jerusalem, and they inquire of the Lord, and they pray and ask God, should we continue to fast in this way? Uh, for 70 years we've been observing these fasts, and now we're coming to a place, you're bringing us out of our situation, what is it that we need to do? And it's interesting the way the Lord answers. We see the question asked, but then we see the question argued. God, God asks, answers the question with a question. Now the world will tell you you're mentally sick if you do that, but I don't think the Lord's mentally sick. Uh, the difference is this, that, that uh, the Lord only asks rhetorical questions. God never asks a question because he needs the answer. He's omniscient. He knows all things. So he asks them a question so that they can ponder it. Verse number 4, the Bible says, Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did ye at all fast unto me, even to me? And when ye did eat and when ye did drink, did not ye eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Should ye not hear the words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity, and the cities thereof round about her when men inhabited the south and the plain? So very interesting what the Lord asked them. Uh, the first thing that he asked them is this. When you did fast, who were you fasting for? Now, that's a question we ought to always ask. Now, most folks don't practice fasting. You can tell I don't practice it like I ought to. Amen. But really it's true of any service that we do for the Lord. Who are we doing it for? I say often in our church, uh, maybe not often enough, but I've said it a few times, that when you come through the double doors of Wall Ridge Baptist Church, if you're coming for me, you won't come very long. If you're coming for those that are around you, you won't come through those doors very long. You're coming for your family members. You won't come very long. The pull of your flesh is stronger uh, than your pride is in that aspect. Uh, so the Lord asks, why were you doing it? So we see in this that their fasting is examined. Verse number 6, their feasting is examined. He says, and when you resumed, who did you resume for? Now, all this is building to a question that God is going to pose towards them. And that question is essentially this. What is the source of your service? He does not say much of anything in verse 7, really, about the fast, but he does say something about the former prophets and the words of the Lord. You see, the Lord had never instituted these fasts. 
And these men, as men have always done, are coming and asking the Lord about about superficial things. Uh, you know, I, I believe in standards, I believe in convictions, I believe in whole living, I, and I believe that the Bible endorses those things. But I am also keenly aware that there are a lot of chains that men will put on you if you let them. And sometimes the very things that we're worried most about are really not the things God's worried about at all. And he, he asks them, there, or he poses this, this thought to them. He says this, you're worried about the fasts. Shouldn't you be worried about obeying the Lord and the word of the Lord? These fasts that men have created, you're caught up. That's what drove you to my house. That's what drove you to Jerusalem. That's what drove you to the prayer closet. You're concerned about these fasts that I didn't institute, that I didn't endorse. He's saying this, rather than dealing with the cure for the symptom, why don't you deal with the cure for the sickness? All the standards and convictions are only useful in as much as they are a means to please God and a response to his dealings in our lives. Uh, you know, I, I, if it, whatever standards that you may have or convictions you may have, God bless you. I think we live in a, I think we live in a world and I think the church is in such a condition we need more standards, more convictions. But they're only useful if, if God's the one that's impressed them upon you. I know what Paul said about not offending my brother. But most of the time, it's not really about offending our brother. It's about offending ourselves in looking bad in the eyes of our brother. Um, it's not really about making a weaker Christian stumble most of the time. That's not why we get so caught up with those things. Usually, it's that we're afraid it's going to make our reputation stumble. And so, the Lord says this. I, I didn't, I, I didn't uh, institute, nor did I endorse these fasts, but he says this. Your fathers neglected the word of the Lord that was given by the former prophets. That's what you ought to be taking heed to. We get caught up in a lot of things, but I'm going to show you right now what the main thing is, and that's this book. Well, you always hear people say, keep the main thing the main thing. You've heard folks say that. Usually they mean the gospel when they say that. Uh, can, I, can I reverently say this, that the gospel is not the main thing. The glory of God is the main thing. Uh, that's what Jude found out whenever he was going to write to them uh, about the common salvation. He said, it was needful that I first write you and exhort you that you should contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. In other words, he said, I was going to write to you about the gospel, but instead I realized it was important for me to fortify you in your walk with the Lord first. You know, if we're not standing for anything, we may win a whole generation of the Lord and they won't stand either. And the, uh, the perpetuity of the gospel is quenched. But we stand for something, we instill some things in people, and those things will continue on, and uh, those things will, will be perpetrated, or perpetuated. Well, they'll be perpetrated too, but anyway. So he says, the main thing is the commandments that I've given you. So we see that in this passage, first off, their hearts are exposed. Then number two, their history is explained. It says in verse number eight, the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. So the Lord said, I've spoken to you, and I've given you these commandments. But they refused to hearken, pulled away the shoulder, stopped their ears, that they should not hear. You say, preacher, I don't understand that. Then you've never raised teenagers. I, I, I've never raised teenagers, but I've, I was a youth pastor, so I had to raise other people's teenagers. And I've seen them do this. You know, you reach to him, even my little boy, I mean, he's getting to an age where he'll start to do this. You'll say, no, don't do that, and you'll reach for him, he'll pull away. He'll pull away. You know, I know, you think he's precious, you think you don't do anything wrong, but you don't live with him, so you don't know. Linda gets upset at me when I talk about how rotten he is. But they pulled away the shoulder. They stopped the ears. In other words, God said, I tried to deal with them, but they would not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law. And the words which the Lord of hosts had sent in his spirit by the former prophets, therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. Now, I want to pause. Can I interject something practical here that the Lord just showed me in this? You notice that they didn't keep from hearing by, by staying away from the giving the law in Instead, there was a way for them to fashion their hearts so that they could keep from hearing. Boy, that's a real, real danger for us in this day that we live in. Just because you're sitting under preaching, that don't mean you're hearing preaching. 
Just because you're sitting in church, that don't mean you're receiving it. That doesn't mean that you're absorbing it. That doesn't mean the Spirit of God is applying it. And the condition is a heart condition. But he says this, I tried to deal with your fathers. I gave them some simple do's and some simple don'ts. We see their simple requirement, but the stubborn refusal. They refuse to do this. And so the Lord says, I sent great wrath upon them. Therefore it has come to pass that as he cried and they would not hear, so they cried, I would not hear, saith the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them for the whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them that no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. Isn't that interesting the way the Lord says that? They laid the pleasant land desolate. He doesn't say I laid it desolate. He doesn't say the Babylonians laid it desolate or the Assyrians laid it desolate. He says, you laid it this by your disobedience. What an exhortation, what a warning to you and I in this day. He says, your fathers did this, and there's a great danger in you doing this as well. So he deals in chapter number 7 with this question that's given. Chapter number 8, he gives an answer to it. Uh, he argues with them at the end of chapter number 7, but in chapter number 8 we see the question answered. And God begins to, through Zechariah, look beyond the present scope of things. It says, again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with a great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now, as with all the minor prophets, there's something you see in the foreground and something in the background. There's a practical application to that, and that is this. He's speaking to these uh, these repatriates, these people that have come back to resettle the land of Israel, and he says this, Your fathers rebelled, and I judged them, and I dealt with them, and, and I scattered them, and lay, they laid the pleasant land desolate, but now I am returned. And I seek to do a work in your midst. And he's saying, don't repeat their mistakes. But in my notes, and I spent some time doing this today just to help me in teaching, I wrote some words out to help me with, a, with the, the time frame of God's prophecies. And I believe it might help you to do that. If you've got a pen in hand, do that. If not, you can get with me and we'll, we'll give you the information. But beside, uh, let's see, Roman numeral 2, letter C, and number 1, where it says, Israel and her needs, I wrote the term millennial. Because the scope of what's being dealt with here is millennial. And God says, I have great things planned for Jerusalem, and I have a desire to dwell in her, if you'll complete the work on this temple, and if you'll follow me and obey me. We know that that, that uh, rebuilt temple is the pattern that, that God used in the book of Ezekiel for the millennial temple that will be built. And so what we're looking at here, there is a foreground application. The Lord says, I'm dwelling in the midst, and I want to dwell in the midst. But very quickly, in uh, the end of verse number 3, it dwells beyond the immediate, and he starts to talk about the millennial. And he says, I'm going to dwell in that mountain. It will be called a, a holy mountain. Verse number 4, a lot of your questions about the millennial reign are going to be answered if you'll pay attention here. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem. Every man with his staff in his hand for very age. It's going to be old people in the millennial reign. People are not going to age as rapidly during the millennial reign. Uh, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that a child shall die at 100 years. In other words, if a person was to die at 100 years old during the millennial reign, it would be like a child dying. It would be, it'd be an unheard of tragedy taking place. So there's going to be some uh, of the remnant of the Jews that have lived through the tribulation and are living in the millennial reign. Verse number 5, And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. There's going to be children born during the millennial reign. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, if it be marvelous in, your, in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in mine eyes, saith the Lord of hosts? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. In other words, uh, from uh, those that are persecuted on the east, which includes Arab nations as well as China. Uh, the kings of the east are going to march through the Euphrates River in the book of Revelation, but also the west country. That's the empire of the Antichrist and the one world empire. Uh, and he says, and I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth 
and in righteousness. So what we see in this passage uh, is not a picture of 1948, uh, but it is a picture of the millennial reign. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, ye that hear in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. That's a long way of saying this. Pay attention to what Haggai and Zechariah are saying. Pay attention to the prophecies uh, that are being given. For before these days there was no hire for man, nor hire for beast. Neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. For I said, All men, every one, against his neighbor. But now I will not be under the residue of this people, as in the former days, saith the Lord of hosts. It's been pretty rough heretofore. The Jews have been afflicted. Every neighbor around them has hated them. But the Lord says, I'm not going to do them that way anymore during the millennial reign. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Again, and the reason I keep saying this is because there's a lot of bad theology that centers around the, the, the rebirth, the preliminary rebirth of the Jewish nation uh, politically that happened in 1948. Uh, growing up, and I grew up in a strong church that preached the Bible, that preached prophecy, but I heard a lot of mispreaching because people misinterpreted when it came to eschatology speaking and prophecy speaking, uh, a lot of mispreaching when it came to this issue of the birth of the Jewish nation because a lot of it was the culture, you know, in the 70s there was a lot of prophecy preaching. And a lot of folks in this room remember that. A lot of prophecy preaching in the 1970s. And uh, it came through like a wave. A lot of that was coming on the heels of the, the Six-Day War in 1967 and, and, and what had happened with the Jews. I mean, it just seemed like they were, uh, you, you know, all those nations, Egypt and, and, and uh, Jordan and Lebanon, all these nations came against Israel, man, and they, Israel didn't have nothing. Uh, I mean, they had like like weapons they had bought from Russia with bent sights, homemade guns. Their ammunition didn't match. I mean, you you might have different grades of ammunition in the foxhole. There's no chance they'd win. But God blew through there in a miraculous way. And, and in six days, they not only fended off the advancing armies, but they stole some of their land. That's the reason you'll hear the president talk a lot and in these peace talks about pre-1967 borders. Because obviously that upset the nations around them. They said, man, we didn't, we didn't come looking for this. We came to take their land. They took our land. Uh, but in the 1970s, coming off the hills of all that, there was a lot of prophecy preaching that centered around the rebirth of the nation of Israel politically in 1948. But in Zechariah, where it says a nation shall be born in a day, the context of that is plain. It is not talking about Israel politically. In the context, Israel has already existed politically for some time. It's talking about salvation. The Jewish nation, and he deals with this towards the end of this book, will in one day look on him whom they've pierced, and through a mighty work of the Spirit of God, they will put their faith in him and be converted. You say, that couldn't happen. Well, God says it's going to happen. I don't understand all the particulars, but I know that God said it's going to happen. And so the pictures before us, it's not 1948 that we're talking about. The Lord's talking about the millennial kingdom. And he's saying in the days leading up to the tribulation, the entire area is ravaged by war. Unemployment is skyrocketing. But God says, I'm not going to deal with you like that during the millennial. Uh, when I come into power, uh, every man's going to be prosperous. Everything, everybody's going to have what they need. It says in verse 13, it shall come to pass that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and ye shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. At this time, and all through history, Jews have been a scourge to every nation. They've hated them. Everywhere that they've gone, they've, they've been viewed as strange outsiders and, and, and as, a, as a plague to society. But God says the way that they've hated you, with that measure of strength that they've hated you, they're going to love you now. And as you were cursed, so will you be a blessing. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, as I thought to punish you, when your fathers provoked me to wrath, saith the Lord of hosts, and I repented not. So again have I thought in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear ye not. He said, the same way my mind couldn't be changed about punishing, you, my mind, will not be changed about prospering you. These are the things that ye shall do. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. Let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. Love no false oath, for all these things, all these are things that I hate, saith the Lord. Kind of a recap of what he said that he had told them before the Babylonian exile. 
says, I gave them a simple list of things to do, and they would not do them. I'm giving you a simple list again. You do these things. This is for the millennial. This is not salvation by works. But he's dealing with the Jews as a nation and their behavior one towards another. The word of the Lord, verse 18, of hosts came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month, and the fast of the seventh month, and the fast of the tenth month shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore love the truth and peace. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, It shall yet come to pass that there shall, uh, that there shall come uh, people and the inhabitants of many cities. So in verse number 19, you know what he says? He says, I'm going to turn your fasting to feasting. All of the affliction that the Jews have experienced is going to be changed. There will be no cause for fasting anymore. Verse number 20, he begins to deal with Israel and her neighbors. The previous verses have dealt with Israel and her needs. These verses deal with Israel and her neighbors. This is still in the millennial reign. He says that people and inhabitants will come from many cities. And the inhabitants, verse number 21, of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So here we see that all of the, the old battle scars between the Jews and every nation are going to be soothed and done away with. And that when the Jew says, let's go up and pray before the Lord, that ten chief men out of different languages, different cities, in other words, all over the world, people are going to grab the coat of the Jew and say, let me go with you because I know God's with you. So God's dealing with what's going to take place with the Jews during the millennial reign in these passages. We see an international pilgrimage of, uh, of uh, to Jerusalem in verses 20 through 22. And then verse 23, we see the international prestige of the Jews. Now, again, verse number, chapter number 9 is divided by a space of, of decades in the life of Zechariah. Uh, we do not know exactly how long, but given the context and, and the content of it, uh, we believe that it came when he was an older man. And God is again speaking in terms of world empires of ages passing. And we're going to very rapidly go through several different ages in chapter number 9 uh, into chapter number 10. So you need to pay close attention. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 9. The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof. When the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. Hamath also shall border thereby, Tyrus and Zidon, though it be very wise. And Tyrus did build herself as a stronghold, and heaped up silver as the dust, and fine gold as the mire of the street. So we begin in these first verses, we're dealing with the Grecian age. Now, if you know your world history, and if not, we'll recap it, but you began with the Egyptian world empire, and that stretched all the way back, uh, you know, into Joseph's days, and even really before that. Uh, then after that, there wasn't really a, a strong world empire uh, until you come down to the Assyrians. There were other big major powers, but the Assyrians were the next world empire. Uh, the Assyrians, of course, were the ones in, in Jonah's day. And, uh, they were the ones that uh, destroyed the northern ten tribes. After them came the Babylonians. The Babylonians with Nebuchadnezzar and the fiery furnace. The Babylonians were the ones that led uh, the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin into exile. They only lasted about 70 years. And then the Medo-Persians came into power. Uh, they were the ones that uh, stormed under through the Tigris River that had been dammed up under the walls of Babylon on the night that the hand rode on the wall. Many, many uh, Tekel Eupharsin, thou hast been weighed in the balances and found wanting. My kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. Uh, and then after them, and it was under their rule that these exiles came back. After the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire rose. And uh, Philip of Macedonia uh, came through and did a lot of conquering. But he had a pretty uh, successful son by the name of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great came through like a whirlwind. In fact, when God gives the visions 
uh, to Nebuchadnezzar concerning the four kingdoms, and he likens him to, to different beasts. He likens Babylon to an eagle, uh, but he likens the Grecian, and he likens the Medo-Persians to a bear, but he likens the Grecians to a leopard with wings. And that's indicative both of, of their uh, fierceness, but also of, of their, their fleetness. In other words, how fast they were. And by the time he was 33 years old, Alexander the Great had conquered the known world. Alexander the Great, when he came to Judah, and this is, I believe this is true. There's some speculation debate, but it certainly is strange that when he came to Judah, he did not conquer it the way he did all the others. But uh, the, kind of the old folklore about it is that the high priest at the time came out to meet the army of Alexander the Great. He was outside of the walls uh, of Jerusalem and brought him into the temple and showed him in the prophecy of Daniel how that his kingdom was foretold. And as a kindness then, Jews were given special empire-wide privileges, and he spared uh, the nation of, the, well, the remnant Jews, one really the nation of Judah, but the remnant Jews that had come back and rebuilt the temple. After Alexander the Great died, he died at 33 years old, a lot of people, and I probably believe this, believe he's probably a sodomite, he's probably a homosexual. At 33 years old, he, he had no no wife, had no heirs, uh, and uh, had no prospects of a wife or prospects of an heir. And at that time in Grecian culture, homosexuality was pretty rampant. Uh, so when he died, his kingdom was divided to four generals that he had. And this instituted a period of time called the Seleucid Dynasty. And actually this was prophesied in the book of Daniel, uh, because uh, that portion of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw uh, that was uh, brass was divided into to four pieces. And the Lord prophesied that in four different directions the Grecian Empire would go. And uh, the portion that encompassed the nation of Judah, was ruled by a man by the name of Antiochus. Uh, his grandson was known as Antiochus Epiphanes. When you study the book of Daniel, you'll hear a lot about Antiochus Epiphanes. In fact, the desolation of abominations is spoken of in the book of Matthew and in the book of Daniel and is shadowed in the book of Second Thessalonians that the Antichrist is going to go into the temple, set himself up as God and the temple of God to be worshipped as God. Uh, that was prophesied in the book of Daniel, but just as there's a foreground and a background, the background was the Antichrist, but the foreground was the actions of Antiochus Epiphanes. He literally went into that rebuilt temple, offered a pig upon the brazen altar, and then took the blood and the broth that had flowed forth from that sacrifice and desecrated the copy of the law that they had in the temple. Thus instituted a period of history for the Jews that was called Hellenism. Now, at that time, and Alexander the Great practiced this, but he gave special privileges to the Jews and, and to Judah. But the, the doctrine of Hellenism was basically this. The same way that the Assyrians decided to eradicate the local culture by intermarrying their people, well, the Greeks decided to eradicate that local culture by infiltrating it with their own priests. And they would uh, support and endorse and institute their own corrupt priests in whatever priesthood existed in that, that local culture so that they could institute the Greek pantheon and the Greek gods into it. Well, things went a little bit differently uh, when they decided to do that to the Jews. Uh, some years had passed, and a Hellenistic priest had come with a Greek general to be instituted at Jerusalem. And the high priest at that time uh, was willing to do it. But a man by the name of Maccabee stood up. And he withstood that Hellenistic priest that, that the Greeks were trying to institute. And actually, when I say withstood him, what the book of Maccabee says is he took a sword and hewed him in pieces. And he thrust through and killed that Hellenistic priest. Then him and his five sons fled into the Judean wilderness and launched a revolution. Uh, now, none of that's scripture. That's history. It's only good in as much as it's history. None of it's found in the Bible, the story of the Maccabees. Uh, it's found in, in uh, what's the, it's, it's escaping me, uh, the Apocrypha, uh, the book of the Maccabees. And let me go ahead and say that the Apocrypha, the vast majority of it is a bunch of nonsense. Uh, 
Uh, and the translators did not include, by the way, the, the Apocrypha. People say that, but they didn't include the Apocrypha uh, in the canon of Scripture. They inserted it between the two Testaments and, and very distinctly noted that it was not Scripture, it was just merely history. There's a lot of nonsense in the Apocrypha. But part of the Apocrypha are the two books of the Maccabees. It's astonishing to read about the revolution. I do believe that that, that took place, and I do believe the hand of God was upon the, the brothers that went by the name Maccabees, and that God delivered them. They broke the yoke of Greek bondage, and for, for these guerrilla fighters to be able to do that was an astonishing thing, and uh, it's exciting to read that history. I know that wasn't in Zechariah chapter 9, but I like it, so I figured you'd like it. I don't even know where we're at at this point. But this is instituting the Grecian period. God is God is beginning to prophesy some things about Alexander the Great's conquering. And he went through and conquered all these places, Hadrach and Damascus, Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, by the way, were big port cities. Um, Tyre was, was built, part of it was built on mainland. Then about a half a mile out, there was an island that was fortified, and that was part of Tyre too. It actually took Alexander the Great two years to defeat Tyre. Uh, and the reason is because he could not get across the waterway uh, to defeat them. That's a matter of history. I mean, you can find any, any book on a bookshelf that deals with that period of history, and they'll talk about his siege of the city of Tyre. For two years, he laid siege to the city of Tyre. He finally built bridges across that canal way to get there and broke the back of Tyre and took their city. And when that happened, uh, Sidon merely acquiesced and allowed him to take their city. So God is prophesying the Greeks taking that city. Verse number four, Behold, the Lord will cast her out, speaking of Sidon, her of Tyre, and he will smite her, uh, the, her power in the sea, and she shall be devoured with fire. Then begins to deal with a few Philistine cities. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall see it and be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for her expectation, shall be ashamed. And the king shall perish from Gaza and Ashkelon, uh, shall not be inhabited. And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away his blood out of his mouth, and his abomination nations from between his teeth, but he that remaineth, even he, shall be for our God. He shall be as a governor in Judah, and Ekron as a Jebusite. Now, again, we see a merging of the immediate and the millennial, because God is looking past what has taken place in in history. Uh, of course, at this time it was prophecy, but now that's his history. He's looking towards the millennial reign. He speaks to the Philistines. The Philistines are sort of indicative of, uh, they're representative of any Gentile. He says that those that remain are going to be like a governor in Judah and like a Jebusite. Now you say, what's a Jebusite? Well, the Jebusites were the folks that lived in Jerusalem before David conquered it. The city of Jerusalem is laid siege to four times in history, significantly. Uh, the Assyrians laid siege to it, the Romans laid siege to it, the Egyptians laid siege to it, David laid, uh, and the Babylonians laid siege to it, but David laid siege to it before any of them, when he took the, the city of Jerusalem. And what he did when he took it is he allowed the Jebusites to be absorbed and to become Israelites. And the Lord says about Gentiles that live through the tribulation period and have not stood against the Jews and have have uh, accepted the Lord, that they're going to be absorbed into that society. Verse number 8, I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by, because of him that returneth, and no oppressor shall pass through them any more. For now have I seen with mine eyes. The Lord says, I'm not going to allow the, the uh, during the millennial reign, the Israelites are not going to be persecuted anymore. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon on a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, whoa, wait a minute. We're talking about the Greek age. All of a sudden now, in uh, verse number nine, we're talking about the church age, the gospel age. And what's the picture that is seen? Most of you recognize that language probably when we read in verse number nine, because it looks forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, whenever he came, he came in meekness and lowliness. He did not come in riding upon a blazing war horse, but rather upon a colt, upon a, a young donkey uh, that had never been ridden upon. And so here we have a, a beautiful, shining, gleaming look at the coming Messiah. Verse number 10 looks past that. It looks past the rejection. Now, I was talking to somebody, talking to Hannah about this before we started. When you look at that picture, the mountain peaks of prophecy, and there's certain things that, that were lost on Old Testament prophets because they did, did not deal 
with with the Jews in particular. One of those is the church age. So in, in verse number 9, we see Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You remember, they cried out, Hosanna, they laid down palm leaves. Verse number 10, it looks beyond that, skips over the entire church age, and looks to the millennial age again in verse number 10. It says this, and I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. In other words, you're not going to have to war or learn war anymore. He shall speak peace unto the heathen. His dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Now, verse number 11, we have it skips another age, and it goes back in time to the Greeks. But also, they're at the forefront, the foreground. The Antichrist is at the background. Verse number 11, As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit, wherein is no water. You know what the Lord says? He says, you know why I delivered you? Because of the blood of the covenant. There are two Old Testament covenants deal with the Jews that were sanctified by blood. One was the covenant at Sinai, the Mosaic covenant that was given. You remember in Exodus chapter 24, uh, God said, if you'll obey me, then I'll lead you. And the people said, okay, we'll obey you if you'll lead us. And God said, okay. And he gave all of the law to Moses. And it was written in a book. And Hebrews uh, chapter 9 deals with this. Uh, they took hyssop, dipped it in the blood of a sacrifice, and sprinkled it upon the people. But that's not the covenant that God's speaking about. Because that was a conditional covenant. In other words, that was God saying, you obey and I'll be good to you. They did not obey. There was another covenant that was instituted by blood. It was the covenant that was made between Abraham and God. Now, I don't have time to deal with all of it. But when a covenant was given... They'd take, when two people made a covenant, they'd take sacrifices, they'd cut them in two, they'd lay half on one side, half on the other side. Then the people would join arm in arm and walk down the length of the covenant, saying what they were covenanting to do, turn around and walk back. There was a picture that they had passed through the blood that they had made a serious commitment of what they were going to do for each other. You may remember in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord says to Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And uh, he, uh, Abraham says, okay, God, let's do this. So he, uh, it went, that's paraphrasing. Don't, don't look, we'll tear concordance to pieces looking for that. But he says, okay, God, that's what we'll do. And so he, he kills the animal, he flays it in two, he lays on either side. And the Bible says he sat there driving the birds of, of prey away, or the scavenger birds rather away. And then God put a great horror of darkness over Abraham and put him to sleep. And Abraham then wakes up and he sees a smoking lamp and a burning furnace floating through the air down that pathway, that blood-soaked pathway and back. You know what God was doing? God said, Abraham, let's make a covenant. Abraham said, okay, I'll prepare the covenant. God said, Abraham, you're going to break that covenant. So he put him to sleep, and God entered into a covenant with himself. You say, what's a covenant where God makes promise to, or makes covenant with himself? That's a promise. The book of Hebrews says it this way, that by two immutable things, two unchangeable things, in the which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a steadfast hope and a sure anchor for the soul. God made a promise to himself. He included Abraham in it. You say, how do I get included like Abraham got included? Same way Abraham did. He believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. So the same way that Abraham was included by faith, you and I are included by faith. And that covenant isn't dependent on anything that we do. But we are asleep essentially for it. God made a promise to himself. It's this covenant. And by the way, that promise dealt with Israel too. I mean, we always look at it from the other prison. We always look at it like, well, God made that with Abraham. And we get included in it. And, and that's a blessing, and that's true. Don't forget that God made that with Abraham. That deals with the Jews that have put their faith in him. And God says this, because of that blood covenant, I brought you out of the pit that had no water. You were in a place of hopelessness and despair. Your death was certain, but I brought you out through the blood of the covenant. So we see the blood, but then we see the battle in verse uh, number, well, let's look at verse number 12. Uh, Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. And boy, that's a beautiful term, isn't it? I could preach a whole message on just that to you prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. And, and that's indicative of them being birthed, the first nation birthed into the millennial kingdom. And as the firstborn, they're due to a double portion, just as the firstborn was in a family. That's what the birthright was, was a double portion of the inheritance. 
When I have beat Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as the sword of a mighty man. And the Lord shall be seen over them. His arrow shall go forth as the lightning, and the Lord God shall blow the trumpet, and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts shall defend them, and they shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and make a noise as though as through wine, and they shall be filled like bowls and as the corners of the altar. The Lord their God shall save them, excuse me, in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty, corn shall make the young men cheerful and new wine the maid. So again, we have a blending. In the foreground is God's deliverance of the Jews in the face of the Grecian Empire. In the background is his deliverance of the Jews in the face of the Antichrist. Chapter number 10, we see the call of the king. This again is millennial. In fact, the very last verse uh, in chapter 17 is millennial, uh, but it goes in chapter number 10 into another dealing with the millennial day. So the Lord's message is first off to a concerned people, verses 1 and 2. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. At the time of the rebuilding of the temple, there was great drought taking place. And it was a real burden to those that were trying to rebuild the temple. And so he says, uh, I, I'm going to give you latter rain in that day. Verse number 2, for the idols have spoken vanity and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. Now, as we come to these verses, I said millennial. Verse number 17 is millennial. I got mixed up with my notes here. But in verse number or chapter number 10, there are some interesting transitions taking place. The first two verses deal with Zechariah's day. And he said, the Lord says, I'm going, the, those that, the diviners, the prophets have, have prophesied comfort. There's not going to be comfort. The drought's not going to end, but I'm going to preserve you. And when the time comes, I'll send the latter rain. When you come to chapter number three, it begins, or verse number three, it begins to deal with the tribulation. And God's going to start to deal with this word shepherd. And you're going to see it here in uh, chapter number 10. I believe you're also going to see it in chapter number 11. Uh, God is going to have Zechariah tell a parable concerning shepherds. We're going to try to hurry through it. I'm bound and determined to hurry through it. If we, if we went five minutes over, would that be okay? Raise your hand if that would be okay. That would be okay? Okay, five, ten, fifteen, twenty. I won't do you that way, I promise. Verse number three. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, dealing with the leaders of Israel. And I punished the goats. For the Lord of hosts hath visited his flock, the house of Judah, hath made them as his goodly horse in battle. Out of him came forth the corner, out of him came, out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. So the Lord says this, speaking of the tribulation, because of those that have falsely led Israel, I have punished them. I punish the shepherds. But speaking prophetically, he says this, speaking of Christ, the hymn in verse number four, uh, at least the, the first three of them, that hymn is Christ, the Messiah. It says, out of him came forth the corner, the cornerstone. Out of him the nail. You remember in Isaiah chapter, uh, or what is it? It's in the book of Isaiah where it says that he'd make Israel as a fastened nail. Uh, well, that was a picture of Christ. And it says, out of him the battle bow. In other words, out of Christ, all their hopes and dreams are going to be fulfilled together. And they shall be as mighty men, which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. And they shall fight, because the Lord is with them, and the riders on horses shall be confounded. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am the Lord their God, and will hear them. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as uh, through wine, yea, their children shall see it and be glad, their heart shall rejoice in the Lord, I will hiss for them and gather them. In other words, the Lord says, I'm not going to have to shout at them. I can whisper and it will gather them. For I have redeemed them. And they shall increase as they have increased. And I will sow them among the people. And they shall remember me in far countries and they shall live with their children and turn again. Now, let me pause here and say this. 
you have to understand the scene that it's going to be during the tribulation period. The moment that Christ breaks the eastern sky, the armies of the Antichrist are ravaging Jerusalem. The Bible teaches that the blood will be so high in that day uh, that it'll come to a horse's bridle. That uh, that out of those that are that are alive on the earth, one out of every six is going to not out of those that are there, out of those that are alive, one out of every six is going to die. The Lord says about the tribulation that if those days were not shortened, the elect would perish. In other words, if God, if Christ didn't return when He returned, the Jews would be extinguished. So this is a day of battle. And all of a sudden, as, the, as Jerusalem is about to fall, Christ will break through the eastern sky. And in a moment, the battle is going to change, and the tide is going to turn. The Lord says in that moment, heart will be given to those of Jerusalem and of Israel. At that moment, all of a sudden, the war horses will gain strength. I will be at the head of that army, and we will eradicate the armies of the Antichrist. The Lord, again, moves beyond to the millennial day. And when he talks about gathering them, and he says, I'll sow them among the people. In other words, they won't be captives anymore. They'll be able to travel throughout the world. They'll live where they choose to live. He says, I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria. And those two terms, Egypt and Assyria, there are representative of all Gentile lands that have oppressed them. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon, and a place shall not be found for them. In other words, uh, they'll be gathered from every place where they won't even fit in Israel at that time. He shall pass through the sea with affliction, and shall smite the waves in the sea, and all the deeps of the river shall dry up, and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. And I will strengthen them in the Lord, they shall walk up and down in his name, saith the Lord. In other words, I'm going to, to beat down the Gentile nations under subjection under the Jews, and I'm going to exalt the Jews. In chapter number 11, again, we have a shift in, in what is being presented to us. And uh, all of a sudden, we're looking back into the time of Christ. And we see a coming invasion in the first verses of chapter 11. It's the Roman invasion. The Lord says this, Open thy doors, O Lebanon, which is to the north, that the fire may devour thy cedars. Howl, fir tree, for the cedar is fallen, because the mighty are spoiled. How, O ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage is come down. So the Lord says in these first few verses, he's speaking of the Roman invasion. And I don't have time to deal with the history, but you ought to read about the Roman invasion of, of Israel. Uh, never was there a more thorough thrashing of Israel than the Romans did. Uh, it was the Roman invasion that scattered them for 2,000 years. When the Lord talks about the titans of the Gentiles and when Jerusalem be trodden underfoot, he is speaking immediately about the Roman invasion of Israel. Uh, there were thousands upon thousands of, of Jews crucified. The temple was burnt to the ground. The nation was utterly decimated. And he says this in verse number 3. There is a voice of the howling of the shepherds, for their glory is spoiled. A voice of the roaring of young lions, for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. In other words, the leaders are crying. Thus saith the Lord my God, feed the flock of the slaughter, whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not. Here in these verses, we have a picture of the Messiah's ministry. Now, that's going to become more vivid as we come to the end of this chapter. But the Messiah's ministry was to feed that flock. Those that were hated, the flock of slaughter is what they're called. Those that have been afflicted for so many years, when Christ came, certainly he did feed them. He walked in their midst, he healed them, he ministered to them, he taught them. But notice what happened, verse number 6. For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. But lo, I will deliver the men, every one, into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king, and they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. I'm going to explain very quickly a unique dynamic to the ministry of Christ. When God makes a promise, he's not bluffing. God knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. God knew full well that the Jews were going to reject Christ. But things were instituted in such a way that if they had received him, he would have allowed himself to be received by them. He would have instituted the millennial kingdom. Now, God knew that wasn't going to happen. But because God doesn't bluff people, he set things up in such a structure that they would. Can I give you an example? The end of the book of Malachi, the Bible says that before Messiah can come, Elijah will come. 
Now, I believe that's going to happen in, in the tribulation. I believe that Elijah and Moses are the two witnesses. If you want to fuss and argue about it, we can, but I believe they're the two witnesses. To this day, when the Jews observe Passover, there's a fifth cup that they don't drink out of, and they say that's Elijah's cup because Elijah is coming back. Do you know what Christ said? They asked him that one day. They said, Elijah's supposed to come first. And speaking of John the Baptist, he said, if you had heard him, John the Baptist would have been Elijah for you. In other words, things are structured in such a way that you could have received me as king, but God knew that they wouldn't. So God sends Christ, but he says this, knowing they're going to reject him, God says, I'm going to forsake the Jews. And he says that they'll be delivered into the hand of their king. Now, who's their king? Well, we know who the king of kings is, but what did they say about it? Pilate marched Christ out in front of him and said, behold, your king. They said this, we have no king but Caesar. So the Lord said, okay, then Caesar will be your king. And it was a Caesar that crucified the Jews. It was a Caesar that destroyed Jerusalem. It was a Caesar that burnt the temple to the ground. You know, sometimes we want something bad enough, God will give us our way. And the greatest judgment God can pay to a child of God when he's going astray is to turn him over to his own decisions. That's enough to destroy it. He says in verse number 7, And I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock, there will be a remnant. And I took unto me two staves, the one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. Now, a shepherd in the Middle East had two staves. One was a heavy stick that he used for fending off predators. One was a crooked staff that he used for retrieving lost sheep. And the Lord says, I've got two staffs in my hand. One is beauty, one is bands. He says, verse number 8, Three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. He said, I tried to give you a shepherd that would lead you, but you nailed him to a cross. And so I cut off three shepherds, leaders in Israel, that were wicked leaders. Then said I, I will not feed you. That that dieth, let it die. And that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. And by the way, that was literally fulfilled during the siege of Jerusalem. Uh, there was cannibalism that took place. Man, what a scary thing. I know, I know I need to hurry on. But man, what a scary thing. God says that which is going to die, let it die. That ought to be a warning to us. Let me tell you something. There's stuff in our Christian walk that brings death. And it's destined for death. God will let it bring forth death. We don't get it out of our lives. It says in verse number 10, And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. That wasn't the covenant of blood he made uh, upon with Abraham. That was the covenant of blood he made at Sinai. I said, I made a covenant with you, but you broke it, so I broke it. I won't watch over you. I'll allow beauty to be robbed of my people. And it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. That remnant... Uh, in the day when the Romans came in that had believed in the Lord, they knew this was the coming of the word of the Lord. And I said unto them, if you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. We all know what that language is indicative of. And the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized out of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. The potter was uh, someone that... that dwelled in the temple that did menial work that you could hire. Uh, it was like a servant. And the Lord says this, I asked you a price for my shepherd, for my love, for my compassion. I asked what it was worth. And Judas said, what is he worth to you? And they said, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. So in a sarcastic way, the Lord says, all right, I took it. It was trash, and I just cast it away. And sure enough, that 30 pieces of silver, if you read the book of Matthew, was used by potter's field. Uh, verse 14, then I cut asunder mine other staff, even bands. And that word bands, it's denoting the unity of the nation. Uh, and the Lord says, I dispersed you. I allowed your unity to be broken, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the Lord said unto me, take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land, which shall not visit those that be cut off, uh, neither shall seek the young one, or heal that that is broken, nor feed that that standeth still. He shall eat the flesh of the fat, and tear their claws in pieces. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock, 
The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. So the Lord says to Zechariah, Zechariah, I want you to now act like a foolish shepherd and walk away from the flock because in that way I'm going to leave my flock Israel to another shepherd and he'll be the idle shepherd. That's a term for the Antichrist. He says that shepherd is going to do harm to Israel. You know that the Israelites are going to, for the first, that seven-year peace treaty, the Antichrist is going to institute between the Jews and the Arabs. Uh, During the tribulation period, the Jews are going to adopt that. They're going to believe that. We know that three and a half years in, the Antichrist is going to break that peace treaty and begin to persecute the Jews. But they, just like they said, we have no king but Caesar. At the beginning of the tribulation period, they'll say we have no God but the Antichrist. It's going to mean their affliction. Chapter number 12, and I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. We get through chapter 12, I'll let God's people go and let you study chapter 13, 14 on your own. And we'll, I hate to do it, but I'll cry uncle. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord. Now, what is chapter 12 about? We see the curse of the king. And we're going to deal in chapter number 12 with the Antichrist. Chapter 13 and 14 deal with the millennial kingdom. And I'm going to trust you to study that in your own time and use this uh, elaborated outline. Chapter 12 deals with the Antichrist. We were introduced to him in the last verse of chapter 17. But it says this, The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Now he begins by noting what nations forget. He declares who he is, and he says, the nations have forgotten who I am. In chapter number, in verse number two, he deals with what the nations find. He says, I make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. Now let me say this, that Jerusalem has been an albatross around the neck of every nation that has dealt with her. Uh, it was an albatross around the neck of Britain. Their defense of Israel really was the, the undoing of their kingdom. Uh, a lot of the reason that we face the terrorism that we do today uh, is because of our nation's past support of Israel. We're seen as part of those that have cast lots with Israel. But then also those that have persecuted Israel. Certainly Jerusalem has been a thorn in their side because God has stood against them. And the Lord says in the same way, the Antichrist, his persecution of Israel, is going to be his undoing. That's what they find. It says, and in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Though all the nations try to destroy Israel, God says, I'm going to destroy them. Verse number four, what do the nations face? In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment, and his rider with madness. Uh, And I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah, and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts their God. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood, and like a torch of fire in a sheath. They shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left, and Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. So the Lord says in that day, uh, Israel's army is going to burn through the armies of the Antichrist, like a fireplace through firewood, like a torch through dry grass. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do magnify themselves against Judah. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and as the house of David shall and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. In other words, when they fight against Israel, it's going to be like fighting against God. It will be fighting against God. It shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Can I say this? We see in this Israel's conviction, the Bible says he'll pour uh, upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They shall look upon me whom they pierce. But we see the spirit of confession here. 
See, the spirit of conviction, the spirit of confession. And this is a vivid example of what confession is. You know what biblical confession is? It's to agree with God about your sin. And you know what's going to happen in that day? Israel's going to see things the way God saw them. They're going to see that him that they pierced, they're going to mourn for him as they would mourn for their only son. And they'll be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. On that day when Christ appears in power and in glory, after the battle is done and they recognize him as Messiah, the Jews are going to realize the mistake they made in rejecting him. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad Rahman in the valley of Megiddo. That was the morning when Josiah died. There was mourning that was inconsolable. And they're going to mourn the same way the Jews mourned for the godly king Josiah. They're going to mourn for Christ uh, and the sins that they had committed. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart and their wives apart, family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart, family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart, family of Shimei apart and their wives apart, all the families that remain, every family apart and their wives apart. You say, what's the distinction there, preacher? Well, the distinction is this. There'll be a collective salvation, but it'll be an individual decision. Only God could fashion such a thing. Only God could do that. But God has the foreknowledge and what the theologians call prescience to know this, that on that day, because God knows the end from the beginning, the Jews are going to turn in salvation for the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole nation will. And how could they anything but? As they look on him whom they've pierced, as all the hopes and dreams and promises of God begin to unfold before them, they'll accept him as their Messiah. 